This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Lebetard. I'm looking forward to this one. I really like these two guys. And I think over time, if you listen to the podcast they're doing with us, you will like them too. One of them is one of the best sports writers ever. The other one is also a fairly good writer that you know a little better. Mike Schur, creator of Parks and Rec. They do a podcast for us, podcast, and it's part of Levitard and Friends. And it is fun, and it is out weekly, and I encourage you to check it out. But before we talk to them, you know I don't do live reads around here. I don't do billboards. I don't advertise on behalf of companies. But I want to tell you the South Beach Sessions is presented by DraftKings Sportsbook. You download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. It's code DAN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. I tell you that because DraftKings is a sponsor in the truest sense of everything we're doing around here. They believe in our freedom. They are sponsoring and funding our freedom, and so I encourage you to help DraftKings where you can in the places that help us by putting in a code DAN because you know that this is supported by DraftKings Sportsbook. Now, the podcast that I told you about is called a podcast. It's Joe Posnanski. He is, as I said, Kansas City star. I encourage you to read him. His latest book is a New York Times bestseller, ranking the top 100 baseball players, but it's not really a ranking. It's a story about America. He is a very deep and good writer, and I enjoy his writing more than almost any I've had in sports. And Mike Schur is a good friend of ours who, I should tell you, also has a book out. And if you support the people who support us, you should get How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question wherever it is you get your books. Because Mike sure decided in his free time, as one of the great television showrunners in Hollywood, he was just going to tackle moral conundrums throughout time using all of history's philosophers. It's a big book. It's a funny book. I have read it, and I encourage you to check it out as well as you support the people who support us, two of whom are Joe Posnanski and Mike Schur. Again, their podcast, part of the Levitard and Friends Network. Enjoy a sampling. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you guys today because I wanted to introduce the audience that hasn't already been introduced to it, to where it is that your relationship resides, why it is they should be listening to your podcast, the love of baseball and other things. But I don't actually know the history of you two guys and how it is that you came together. Was it over baseball? Is that where it started, Joe? Sort of. It was when Mike, and I was actually trying to think of the year. What year were you leaving? Did you leave the office? 2008 or nine, depending on how you count it. Okay. So I so, think it was, yeah. you were still at the office. It was 2008, I guess. And he was writing, Mike was writing the uh, Fire Joe Morgan thing under the Ken Tremendous banner. And he wrote as Ken Tremendous he destroyed somebody who was like a friend of mine in in the best way totally deserved just absolutely <laughs> destroyed the guy for those who don't know mike sure before the office had a uh, on the side a project where he would just basically mock sports writers and that's right and do it uh, he's a decent person mike is but do it pretty <laughs> cruelly like unusually cruelly he would dismantle yeah. asshole people that joe posnanski would never dismantle because they were his brethren and his friends and he's a very nice man <laughs> yeah yeah no it well and it was cruel because it was so funny and so true is what it was and so i wrote to him that's how we met as i wrote to him and i said hey i just want you to know that that this is about a friend of mine <laughs> he, he totally deserved it you wrote absolutely the right thing and please, for the love of God, don't ever do this to me. Because I, I can't, I'll never survive it. I don't have the the confidence to survive you doing this to me. And that's how we met, because he wrote back to me and said, Hey man, I'm I'm a fan. I wouldn't do that to you. You're not, you're not 
Well, Mike, I want to talk to you about this part of it, though, because I find you are a person who had you you create Parks and Rec. You love this creative kind of writing. And yet there was a real joy. It felt like to me in reading Fire Joe Morgan. And I thought you were much uh, more, I guess, when I read it and was a fan of it, I thought you were more cruel, that you'd be a more cruel human being because. Uh, Asshole-ish. You, Asshole-ish well, well, you is would the just word eviscerate writers like, what, in your search for truth and, and to call bullshit on everything. Everything in sports writing, the way that you eviscerated people was unassailable. And so it could be so on the money as to feel cruel because you're making dumb people look dumber. Well, that was a key moment in the history of sports writing, right? Because we, we were post Moneyball. Moneyball had had drawn a bright line between people who understand what statistical analysis could do for writing and for the analysis of the game. And then people who were just like, this is nonsense. I'm not going to let a computer tell me what baseball is. So we were on the other side of that line, but it had not been around so long that it had just worked its way fully into the culture. So there were really two camps of people. And I was venting my anger at what I saw at the time through this pretty unimportant medium of like how we write about baseball. Like in the in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important but I care about baseball. And so I was venting my anger. And so were the other guys who worked on the site at the just seeming lack of ability that people had to just accept new information. That was all it really was. It was just like, if you don't, if we are a, as a culture, as a people, as a society, if we cannot accept new information, we're really in trouble. And so it was a, a level of anger I don't usually engage in in the world. And it was all being vented right at the people who were just refusing to say like, oh, look, there's a better way to, to think about things. So yeah, I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself a mean or cruel person, but I certainly would consider myself a mean and cruel sports commentator. Well, Joe, I do want to talk about this for a second with Mike, because I admire him so much for so many different reasons. But one of them is as a side project, as he's sitting here uh, balancing all these other pressures, he's decided to write a book that tackles what is the correct moral thing to do in every moral dilemma, according to all of the world's and history's philosophers. So basically, he's tried to write a book that is very degree of difficulty. It's very challenging as a side project. And what he speaks of there, an inability for others to accept new information, is the spiritual birthplace of this book. Correct, Mike? Because you're like, yeah. really, we've arrived in a place. You've decided to tackle this subject matter in a book, at least in part because you can't believe that people won't put on masks for each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the logical, in some ways, follow-up to Fire Joe Morgan. That's, that's how we can think of it, right? It's because we're in a situation now where, even global pandemic aside, we're in a situation now where day-to-day, week-to-week, hour-to-hour, we are forced with moral choices. And we're forced into them whether we want to be or not. It's just the deal with being alive on Earth. The pandemic was like a black light that sort of revealed all of this stuff in in high relief. But Generally speaking, every single day we make like dozens of moral choices. And it occurred to me that there are people who have been writing about how to handle those moral choices for thousands of years. And we're basically writing advice columns. And the problem was that nobody read them because they're all 600 pages long and written in German. And so it was like, if I could boil this down and say like, hey, this is available to you, right? This information is available to you if you want it. The smartest people who ever lived on earth have told you how to approach these choices. And if you can just engage with them, you can at least make, you might, you're going to still blow it. You're going to still make bad choices occasionally, but at least you'll have some ammunition. You'll have some, some arrows in your quiver so that when you make them, you can feel like you have a better shot of getting it right. So I tried to take all of that stuff that I read to make the show The Good Place and boil it down and present it in a way that was mildly entertaining and readable with the idea that like if if people can just access this stuff if it's not 600 pages long and written in german and you can access it you can at least say like when you're faced with one of these choices you can say like well here's what this person said here's what this person said i'm going to follow that advice so that that's the idea behind the book but it's the logical successor to fire joe morgan because it's the same idea it's basically let's accept new information 
let's take in new information and try to make ourselves better than we were before. That's the idea. While you, Joe, you worthless bum, rank the 100 best <laughs> baseball players of all time. You dedicate 800 pages as Mike Schur decides in his spare time to conquer the world and help humanity with all of history and philosophy at his back. You are arguing about whether Mike Trout is 77 or 78 on yeah. the greatest players of all time. Yeah, no, no. It's a, Well, look, I felt like my first book, uh, The Soul of Baseball, uh, where I traveled around the country with Buck O'Neill, I kind of feel like I already wrote Mike's book. I already feel like, like all you have to know about life to get better is, is to... So I'm like, that's covered ground. Yeah. Let Mike handle You've it. Moved oh, wow. You've moved on. Wow. So wait, so wait. Things. So you already did. So Mike, uh, so I see. So Mike is chasing you because... No, you, that's right. You, through the history of the Negro Leagues, you told the history of this country, correct? And so you've already been here with this subject matter. You've moved on to more difficult things. Yeah, my feeling is like, look, you, you just read the solo baseball and you're, you're fine. You'll you'll know how to be a good person. You know how to be perfect. It's, it's fine. And uh, so I'm like, all right, well, now what? Like, what's left to do? Yeah, let's rank the 100 greatest baseball players. And that's why my next book, The 700 Greatest Cricketers, will be on sale through Simon & Schuster in 2024. Just going to keep following I'm just, me. I'm just that's, catching that's up. I'm trying deal. to catch yeah. up. Well, both, both, one of the reasons that I've enjoyed listening or reading to you guys, reading what you guys would write about sports is because both of you were always, it seemed like looking at the, at the macro, at the societal. The podcast you guys do, why is it all the money for that is going to the Negro Leagues Museum? What is your attachment, the two of you, to this cause and that part of the story? Because, uh, Joe, you have... I don't know that there's a person who knows more about the Negro League's history in this country as an authority than than you as a historian. Well, there, yeah, I mean, look, there are there are people that that know more. I mean, in in that sense, but I I love the story of the Negro Leagues deeply. My first book was with Buck O'Neill, and one of my closest friends in the world is Bob Kendrick, who is the president of Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it's always been incredibly important to me. And it's it's always been incredibly important to Mike. And so for us, the idea of do, so this podcast that we do, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's meaningless. It's it's utterly nonsense. And we've done it for years and years for no reason whatsoever. Right. Like, Mike, would you say there's like a single redeeming I would say quality? There, there's several reasons not to do it. That's right. Like it's not just that there's no reason to do it. There's multiple reasons that we should have stopped along. Oh no, ago. but the That's reason right. you can't say no reason because I my guess is from knowing you both a little bit, you enjoy each other's company. It's 90 yes. stimulating minutes where you're like, oh, I get to come over here to this really stupid playground and we can <laughs> argue about, you know, advanced metrics because we're both Bill James dorks who geek out if Tim Kirkshin calls us. For a while we had a we had a we were obsessed with the fact that on all the argument shows on ESPN, people are forced into taking positions that they clearly don't hold just so they could disagree. And so for a while, without really announcing it, we would we did the same thing, except we just always agreed on everything. <laughs> we, whatever the issue was, we what? would raise it and then debate it, but we would always be on the same side because there yeah. was very clearly one side that was Like correct. one of us would say something like, oh, this Terrell Owens controversy, what do you think? And and the other one would say, like, eh, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, you're right. And then we'd yeah, you're right. like, next Next issue. Well, but, yeah. let's, let, but let me look at two guys who... You guys have grown up with the landscape of what ESPN was when you were growing up and what it's become and what argument television is and what sports writing used to be before ESPN bought it and turned us all into the cotton candy salesmen who, you know, do the Stephen A. Smith shtick of whatever it is passes for creative content these days. You guys look at what's happened to sports media in the 25 years that you've been observing it and make what of it? I mean, I'm as turned off by it as as the next guy. I would say personally, like I, I when Sports Center hit its stride in the let's call it the whatever early '90s, I guess like it was such a revelation. Like I loved it so much, and I loved the comedy. I loved Kenny Mayne. I loved Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. I was just so happy that there was a place where you could see sports highlights and like learn about what had happened in sports. And then over the course of the next you know, whatever 15 years it became a thing where people were pitted against each other. Yeah. And and it just it was just so odd to me and sad and I and I get I get the conflict, I get the 
the ratings draw of people screaming and and disagreeing. But it just had no. I had no interest in it. I was just like, why? I, and again, part of why I had no interest in it was it was so phony. It was so obviously phony in every single episode of every single one of those shows. Here's a question, and then the two people magically had diametrically opposed opinions, and like not it. They would have kept me around longer. Uh, maybe I'm alone in this. If every fifth question, the two people had agreed on yeah. something, because it would have been like, oh, this is actually what they think. But it became so clear that it wasn't actually what people thought. It was just one of you has to take side A and one of you has to take side B. And I just lost interest in it, all of it. Like I love PTI because it was just two guys talking about sports and sometimes they would seem to agree and sometimes they wouldn't. But the point of it wasn't let's fight. And in every show where the point of it was let's fight, I was just immediately bored. It was just like, well, none, none of this is real. None of it's genuine. So I just kind of drifted away. And I, I think there's something else that you said. I mean, and, and I think this is something, obviously, this really speaks to Mike's life, you know, and but but I think speaks to me as well, is it used to be funnier. It just yeah. used to be funnier. Like Sports Center was the funniest show on television for a while there. It really was during that stretch. And PTI, I mean, Will Bond and Kornheiser are just so funny. And you're funny, Dan. Look, I'm just gonna say that. I mean, there are yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so, look, so, so. I'm, I'm not look sure I'm good with I'm I'm totally good with that exchange where I exist in the comedic universe where Poznansky with his comedic sensibilities looks at me another frumpy sports writer and says you're funny for us yeah, and funny. Mike sure who knows what really funny is says uh, <laughs> you're, you're kind yeah, so, of a so. hack Levitard. <laughs> I work with people who are actually professionally funny I'm totally good with how that went Kenny Maine saying the finest meats and cheeses for all my uh, people or whatever when someone hit a home run was my favorite comedic yeah. moment of every evening. Like uh, that, that stuff, it was like, because it, it's the thing that, Dan, you talk about this all the time. None of this matters. This is sports. It doesn't actually matter. The, what happens on the field doesn't matter. It's just fun. It's entertainment. And they turned it into entertainment. They turned it into like, we're a bunch of dudes who were watching sports and saying dumb things about sports. That's all I wanted. I, that's all I wanted. And in the, in what it's become is this now in the modern day, it's become a debate about, do you mix in commentary with your sports? Did you get political, whatever? That's a completely secondary issue. The original issue was, are we going to treat this seriously or are we not going to treat it seriously? And when they weren't treating it seriously, it was pure joy and, and just delight. And then over the years, it's been turned into something completely different that is less enjoyable. You're right, Joe. That is the problem. It's not funny. It's just not funny. There are like oasises in sports commentary. Right? Like, like you know, what's very, very funny is the TNT basketball. Oh, uh, so, hilarious. Best show, best show on TV. Best show on TV. It's so funny. And... Then you, but you turn on, you know, let's ESPN, you turn on other, you know, talk radio, you turn, and it's, it's not only not funny, it's not even trying to be funny. It's, it's, it's taking this stuff as seriously as, I mean, I heard a, a commentary somewhere the last couple of days about Baker Mayfield. And it's like Baker Mayfield is right now playing with like 12 torn ligaments in his body, right? Like literally every part of his body is falling off at this point. That is really funny. I'm sorry. That's really, <laughs> really funny. But they were very seriously, what are the Browns going to do? And this and this and this. And it was like they were arguing. And one guy was saying he's great. And the other guy was saying he's terrible. And it was like, who wants to listen to this? Like, yeah. who wants to hear this? I don't know. My team is one win away, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge, and I'm going to get myself an ice-cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. 
Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's interesting the perspective that you guys have where you're like, well, PTI, that's the one I watched. And some of this is you guys growing, growing as adults. It's some of putting down some of the fandom that comes with childlike innocence of loving some of these things. And so PTI was a rebellious thing. Somebody, people like us were on television talking about television the way that we would talk about television. But the success of that was birthing a bunch of cheap imitators, literally in some cases. But those guys had a genuine relationship that was two journalists in a newsroom. And we grew up around stuff where we recognized the authenticity of that. But of course, the recreation of that would result in a whole lot of people doing it less well. Yeah, yeah. it's always going to be the case. The first thing sets the template and then it's let's replicate the template and it's never as good. And that, and look, I disagree with a decent amount of what Kornheiser and Wilbon say. Some of the funniest moments of sports commentary in recent years as you have noted on your show, have come from ridiculous things that have been said on that show. Well, Win the game, they, Frank. Well, they don't, the two of them, between the two of them, this must be offensive to you because I happen to know very few people in the universe who know the sport that you guys care about the way you two know baseball. So it must be laughable to the two of you to hear Kornheiser and Wilbon try to talk about baseball because... They, they are simply not equipped to have any of the metrics or, or sophistication you guys have because for some reason, two people I know with bigger brain power than just about anybody I know dedicate an obsessive, compulsive amount of time to caring about this stupidity. Yeah, it's not it's not great, honestly. It's not great. And like that 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 famous Wilbon win the game, Frank, is is an incredible moment. That is an incredible moment in the history of sports journalism. <laughs> that it really is. It's an amazing, it's an amazing argument. It's a guy who's so dug in on one particular wrong opinion that he can't he can't help himself. That particular kind of commentary is dying. It's not that common anymore. So when you hear it in the wild, it's still like, oh my God, this is someone still believes this. So, you know, it's not that everything about PTI was perfect. It's just no. that the two of them together were were compelling. They also were unique, I think, among all of the shows that we're talking about. And the last thing that Kornheiser says is we're out of time. We'll try to do better the next time. Like they had a guy who was only job was to correct the many mistakes that they would make over the course of discussing this whatever they're discussing it's like so funny. they weren't they didn't they didn't present themselves as like this is my opinion and it is correct and we are always right they had an they had an awareness and acknowledgement that the, in the course of talking about sports you're going to get things wrong and that's fine they were straddling a line and now we veered way off that line into it is irrelevant whether you're correct or not it's just about who shouts louder or who gets more points or whatever. And it, that's the that's the real bummer of it to me. Well, and the other thing about that show, and Dan, you know this because you know those guys really well as I do. They did that show for 20 years in the Washington Post newsroom before it ever went on the air, <laughs> which is exactly the same. I mean, for whatever nonsense we do on the podcast, that's literally what Mike and I do when we're not on the podcast. Like if we're out to dinner, we do exactly well, this, this is this thing. is why I want to introduce the listeners more formally to what it is that this is, because I do believe this is two smart people who have the right perspective on where sports fit among us and still love it with a way that is crazy because the two of you as baseball fans specifically are just crazy people. The way that you care about it is fundamentally unreasonable but i recognize it as someone who went to get the bill james abstracts with my grandfather as a child and then outgrew it and when moved on to other things with my life i didn't forever <laughs> ch forever chase those numbers to where you guys have chasing them chase them now where you could probably tell me empirically joe and i i it's not even subjective mike trout is the blank baseball player 
best ever. Like what? what oh, yeah, twenty number twenty seven. He's the twenty seven <laughs> best. Ever. No, that's, that's already that's that's that's. It's so it. it's so amazing that his uniform number is the same. I know it's, it's, it's weird. It's weird it's how that weird worked out. Coincidence how that worked out that way. <laughs> but you guys were both. So you guys are both the baseball dorks, right? Uh, having the same childhood I'm having with the Bill James abstracts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that that was I I didn't I wasn't a full convert into this method of of thinking about the game until I I had the Bill James abstracts. I have them on my shelf still. I still own them. I still look at them. Um but I I I wasn't a full convert into what we're talking about until after Moneyball came out. Moneyball yeah. really changed my life. Moneyball was like, "Oh, I now understand how thinking about the game this way can actually affect the game that is played on the field. It's not just an after-the-fact thing where you analyze what happened. You can put together a team by thinking this way before you construct your roster. That was a that was a revelation to me. So I, I was a math nerd, frankly, when I was a kid, but I wasn't a baseball math nerd until after Moneyball came out. Joe, yeah. you might have gotten there before I did. I, a little bit, but honestly, Moneyball was a big change for me too. I mean, of course, I was already writing and and i knew bill by then when it came out hell of a name drop and, hell of a name drop like, they, <laughs> yeah i know like, I, you really that, just showed your no, bill bona fides there like i knew bill by then uh, by yeah. then i knew bill <laughs> bill and i by then had become good friends but i mean i'd read it but i i think moneyball really did put it for me into into some kind of context it was sort of like yeah, I knew that that Bill James would talk about how batting average was not a great way to to judge a hitter, and he would talk about how pitcher wins were were this and that, and and he would talk about the value of walks and all those things. But I never Moneyball put that all into something that mattered. Like it it sort of said, you know, a lot of people don't think that. Like a lot of people don't, and those people are falling behind. I can't believe the way that you guys experienced this so differently than than I did, because the way that I experienced Moneyball is to find it obviously as a fascinating read and to wonder like how is it that this writer, the mechanics of it, how is that this writer just got all these market secrets that would run that sport for the next 20 years and that the Dodgers now would beat the Rays because they've got a the the, the money and the analytics on right. their side. I couldn't believe that any of that existed, but I didn't have it change my life, Mike. Like you're describing Moneyball as changing your life? Yeah, it did. And in part because, well, first you have to start by caring about baseball as much as I care about baseball. But then you're watching something you don't understand. And in my case, it was how are the goddamn Oakland A's with a $38 million payroll winning 102 games and winning more games than the Yankees, who at the time were were 50% higher in payroll than anybody else. And I was just like, man, they just get, must be really good at scouting. And then you read that book and it answers a question. That was what was so revelatory about that book is it was like Jeopardy. You got You had the answer first and the answer was the A's are great. And then you read that book and got the question, which was, how are they doing this? And so to ha that was what was so revelatory about it for me was I was I had watched it and not known the answer for so long. And then you read the book and you get the answer. It's like, well, this is what they're doing and this is why it works. And it just, it's one of those things, Bill, James talks about this. When, you wanted to talk about real math nerd stuff. Here you go. You ready? Joe, have you ever read Bill James's book on uh, wind shares? <laughs> yes. wind share, his wind shares book is the nerdiest thing I've oh, ever is. read in my life, which is saying something significant. <laughs> it is the nerdiest stuff ever. And he walks through how he does it. And one of the things that at a key moment, you're, I'm sort of following it. And the key moment, he's like, why do I do it this way? Why do I use this formula? And the answer is because it works. Yeah. Because when you apply this formula and you calculate who are the greatest players of all time and you look at the list, you're like, right, that makes sense. It's, it's Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Ted Williams. And so... He's doing trial and error, and then he comes up with a formula, and he plugs in the formula, and the results he get match what he would have thought they would have produced if they were the right formula. And so that's what Moneyball was in a bigger sense, was just like, well, how do we know this is the right way to do it? Because it works. Because the A's have no money and are getting pitchers with relief pitchers who have club feet. And, and drafting catchers who are weigh 320 pounds and can't run, and they're winning more than the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers. So, like, the proof is in the pudding. Not It's not just one year. It's every year in that stretch. I mean, the dumbest thing Billy Bean ever did, I'm so happy he did it, 
But the dumbest thing he ever did was agree to have that book be written about him. Because I was if just going to. I was just going to ask Joe. I was just going to ask Joe. Like Billy Bean might still be hiding in the shadows with us trying to figure out baseball if he hadn't told everybody how he did it. And I imagine because the ego and the vanity of like, can somebody please give me some credit for like I'm I'm sitting here working in the shadows and I'm winning more games in a season than the Yankees. Yeah. Here's the thing. We can we can all feel. Billy Bean and his like $50,000 speaking engagements, you know, that he has gotten since the book. He's, he's, the book has been good for him. Like yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's done incredibly well for him. And I think his feeling on it, and he's probably right, is like by the time people read Moneyball, I'll be doing something else, right? Like that'll be Moneyball is, is how you won in 2003. But to win in 2008, you've got to have a completely different thing. And, you know, it's like you're never going to catch up. It's always about thinking, you know, smarter than everybody else. And, and you know, there might be maybe there's still a club out there that's that's still like, eh, batting average still works, you know, but I, I don't I don't think so. Everybody's everybody's got, you know, their their Ivy League GM and their and their, you know, 27 person analytics department. It's just it's it's just completely different. So but I'll tell you what I think about Moneyball that I think made it so amazing is Michael Lewis. Like I think if somebody else had written that book said, oh, how did the how did the uh, A's win? So yeah, boring. It could have been, been so boring. boring. Yeah. Right. It's it's yeah. it's his, you know, his unbelievable talents as a storyteller and his unbelievable willingness to basically go no i want in the draft room like right like he he was michael lewis already by then he'd already written bestsellers so he could walk in and and billy bean would be like yeah i'll give you this he's like no i'm taking i want i want in everything and yeah. and, and it worked mike have you applied any of this sort of stuff when you say it's changed your life you're just saying because you love this thing baseball so much that it allowed you a portal into understanding it so much better and learning like an entire secret labyrinth of wait, I can watch this game and be as informed as all of the people making the decisions. If I if I wish to be, has it changed at all your perspective in any of the ways that you do things in this other world that you occupy, where you make the storytelling things that aren't about sports? Absolutely, no question. The essence of Moneyball is in any institution there are certain calcified systems of thought or belief that become de rigueur and are just followed blindly, right? So in economics and in, in, uh, in the insurance industry and in, in garbage collection, whatever, it's like, this is how we do it. And when, when anything becomes, this is how we do it, then people stop questioning whether this is the best way to do it. And it's no different in Hollywood. There is a system when you're putting together a TV show, there is a system of hiring a writing staff, let's say. And the system is like, okay, the first thing you do is you, is you find someone with a lot of experience, who has worked on a lot of shows and knows a lot about how to how to put stories together and you hire that person first and that person becomes what's called your number 2 your your you know it's uh, Tom Sizemore's role in uh, Saving Private Ryan right the loyal number 2 who stands by your side and helps you keep the room moving and everything else and then the next thing you do is you find a bunch of people who are maybe don't have quite as much uh, uh, experience, but have a decent amount of experience and you fill in those positions, producer, supervising producer, all those credits you see on a TV show. And then you move down the line and eventually the last thing you do is you hire staff writers. Um, staff writers are new writers who are just breaking in, usually pretty young, who uh, maybe have a sample, but have never written on a staff before. That's the last thing you do. And one of the things that Greg Daniels, who was my mentor, did even before this that was very moneyballish was he was like, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you do it that way? What you're doing, the first thing you're doing is you're hiring someone at a very high level who's very expensive and takes up a lot of your budget. And that person probably just maybe wrote a pilot that didn't go and is miserable and has a, is like <laughs> up, upset that they have to go work on your show instead of doing their own show. And they're a little bit checked out because this isn't the thing that they wanted to be doing, right? And you move down the line of experience and by the end, you're picking through this pot of staff writers and the best ones maybe by the time you know a couple weeks go by maybe by the time you get to analyzing the staff writers they're the best ones are all gone and he basically inverted it which is why i got a job with him like he inverted that system the first thing he did when he was putting together the office writing staff is he looked for people very billy bean like in play who were coming from places that are not the typical places where people where writers come from i was at saturday night live that's not a typical place you draw from when you're putting together a writing staff or at least it wasn't in 2004. mindy kaling was a playwright 
She had never written anything for TV before. She was a playwright who had written a play that she had been in that was about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, where she, I think, played Ben Affleck and her best friend Brenda played Matt Damon. And then, and BJ Novak was a stand, a young stand-up who had never, who hadn't really done anything either. And his, he was a very moneyball attitude, which was like, let's go to these places where other people aren't looking to try to find people who fit what I'm trying to put together. And I still put writing staff together the same way. I don't, I don't go in that normal top-down order. I always look everywhere and go to weird. I hired Jen Statsky on Parks and Recreation from a single tweet she wrote. She wrote a tweet about Mitt Romney's wife right after the election where Mitt Romney lost that was so funny. And I was like, if this, I don't know who this person is, but if this person can write a joke this good, then that person has a good comedy brain and can be a good, a useful person on a writing staff. Same with Megan Amram. Same, I, I, I've hired people off of short stories, off of, off of um, poems. Like I, I'll, I go to places where I think no one else is looking for good writers and it's served me very well. So yeah, I, and I don't think... I don't think I do that, honestly, if it's not for Moneyball. I think that it absolutely changed the way that I thought about how to operate within an old system that, that can be calcified and kind of stayed in its approach to making whatever it makes. You're talking about seeing the seed of something and you can teach everything else? Like you're talking- Yeah, yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Because the great, another Greg Daniels thing was, and part of the reason he hired me and Mindy and BJ was- if you're a new writer, if you are just breaking into the industry, you have no bad habits, right? You haven't you haven't worked for bosses who didn't know what they were doing and had crummy uh, story structure and bad techniques and bad habits, and also maybe were were just like annoying people to work for that turned you off of the concept of writing for TV. So you are you're fresh meat, man. You haven't done anything or had anything had any of your like procedures sort of set in stone. And so you're more moldable and you can buy into whatever the new system is that you're buying into. And for Greg, when he was doing The Office, that was huge because The Office was groundbreaking. It was a mockumentary, which hadn't been done on TV and maybe ever, or at least in a very long time. It had very different themes and ideas and a very different process. And he didn't want people who had already worked on a bunch of sitcoms who would be resisting what he was trying to do. So it's much easier to teach people how you want to do things if they've never learned any other way before. Um, so that that's the theory. And again, it's worked very well for me, I, I would say. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Joe, both of you are very gifted writers. I'm curious what your take is on this because as much as I admire your writing i don't think of you even though you are also capable of being funny i don't think of you doing the same kind of writing that mike shore does uh from the perspective of funny writing to me is the hardest i don't think i can do consistently funny writing and i fancy you as the very top of what we do joe uh but very few in our industry i always thought was interesting it's part of bill simmons's success i found it i couldn't believe that in our industry Industry, which was actually treasuring sports writing that sports people couldn't write funny there was there was hardly no one writing funny yeah look i mean i listen to mike he hasn't offered me a job i mean i mean I, this has been <laughs> been friends forever i he's never asked me to do anything um yeah i i think the kind of funny that i try to write is obviously incredibly different in fact i've mike and i have talked about this like there's a kind of funny when you're when you're reading that can make you laugh. Sort of the Dave Barry, you know, if you, if you want to go back to to humor writing like that. Kornheiser. That Kornheiser, very funny. Jim Murray. I mean, you know, there are guys like that. But where you read it and you it, it make, makes you chuckle or makes you laugh. And then there's the kind of funny where it's spoken funny. And and obviously you're going for a a different thing. It's a bigger laugh. You, it has to be, you know, if somebody writes to me, and I do get, regardless of, of the, how absurd it is, I do get people going, oh my God, I was, 
reading your thing and I was just cracking up and everybody was looking at me and 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 how you know and I I don't buy it. I just don't I just don't think that that I that it's it's that easy to write something that people just read in their own mind and then just start laughing. Mike, you why? Know, I think they think oh that's funny. I think that's how they they view it. So yeah, what Mike does and the incredible staff of people that 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 work with him do is is I think very very different and and the thing that surprised me about what Mike said is that people didn't go to Saturday Night Live more early on. I think now I would imagine they, do, they do, but yeah, that surprised me because to me that's the core. I mean, that's the one where you were putting yourself out there. That's the one like I have thought about like, oh, well, what would happen if I ever tried to write for TV or something like that? Like literally I get the shakes thinking about trying to write for Saturday Night Live and just having something that I wrote out there in front of an audience like a couple of days later. Like I literally I don't see how anybody survives that humiliation. I really don't. It's terrifying. It's the it's the <laughs> it's still the scariest thing I've ever done by it. I still have I literally this is not a joke. Two nights ago I had a stress dream about being at SNL. <laughs> and I still it like twice a year I'll have a stress dream. And my wife worked there too and she has them too. Like yeah. it is it is the scariest thing. Have I ever told you, Dan, have I ever told you the Conan O'Brien story? about SNL. I can't remember if I've told you this story I, I, You've told me a few Conan O'Brien stories that I would like to repeat that I can't repeat, so I don't know which one <laughs> I don't know which one it is that you're choosing from here. Con Conan hosted SNL for the first time. Uh, so he was a writer there, and then he came back to host when his, his late night show was up, and the hardest part of every week usually is the monologue. It's, the, it's very tricky. It's right at the top of the show. The host is playing him or herself and has to be funny as him or herself. It's not wigs and costumes and whatever. And it's always a it's always a challenge. We used to love it when a stand-up would host because we would know they would just do 10 minutes. Like Chris Rock would just do 10 minutes of great stand-up and no one had to worry about the monologue. So Conan has this monologue and it's really funny and, and it involves him saying like, you know, my studio is right downstairs and I'm going to take you there. I'm going to show you how close it is because the Studio 8H is on the 8th floor of 30 Rock. Conan's studio is 6A, which was on the 6th floor. So the, the monologue was the camera walking with him from the in real time from the monologue spot down to his studio. And there were a bunch of jokes on the way he stopped and talked to people. And it was all very funny. But Lauren has this thing, which is at the beginning of the monologue, no matter what the premise is, he wants the host to tell a joke. Just tell a quick joke and get a laugh. There's always one joke right at the top of the monologue where it's like the introductory sort of like preamble joke. And we couldn't crack it. We just didn't know what it was. We couldn't figure it out. So he tries one at dress rehearsal and it, and it doesn't work. And I was assigned that week to the monologue. So I was, they always assign one writer. So I, I was working with Conan on the monologue. So we keep trying, we keep pitching jokes. Nothing works, nothing works, nothing works. It's 11.24 PM. He's walking onto the stage in a matter of minutes and we still don't know what that joke is. So there's like an emergency meeting. It's me it's like some of the greatest comedy writers of all time. It's like me, I think McKay, maybe Robert Smigel, Lorne, and Conan O'Brien are standing in a huddle trying to write a single goddamn joke <laughs> for one of the funniest people in the world. And we can't do it. And literally the, um, the, <laughs> the show starts, the cold open starts. It's happening on live television. And we're right outside the studio trying to write one joke. And eventually, I think it was Smigel, the XFL, it was the XFL season. So I think Smigel goes, hey, uh, and, and NBC was airing the XFL. And so he was like, wait, what if we just do a joke of like, and it was, the XFL was already tanking. It was already like, we, everyone knew it was gone. So he's like, what if we just do a joke that's like, I know what you're all thinking. I know that you're desperate to hear the big news. So the final score was, you know, Jacksonville Ramblers 42, Las Vegas Gamblers 37 or whatever. And Conan was like, great, I can sell that. And so I was, so then it was like, literally, Mike, go. So I had to run into the control. This is like slightly pre-internet. It's like the internet exists, but it's real slow. I had to quickly scramble, find the actual score of whatever dumb XFL game had just aired, and then run to cue cards and yell at Wally, the cue card guy. Okay, here's the joke. And he's sitting there waiting with his giant cue cards and they write them by hand. And so I dictated the joke to him. As I'm dictating the joke to him, 
I hear Don Pardo go, ladies and gentlemen, Conan O'Brien. <laughs> and then the crowd cheering and he's walking on stage. And I'm still dictating the joke to Wally. Oh, no. Right, 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 right. Scramble, scramble, scramble. Conan comes out. He looks up. There are no cue cards there because Wally and I are behind this under the bleachers writing the joke he is about to tell. Wally finishes writing the joke, runs out to the stage. Conan is just vamping. Conan is just out there like, oh, hello. How are you? Yes, it's nice to be here. Somebody, thank God, yells, I love you, Conan. He goes, I love you too, sir. Everybody laughs. He just vamps and then Wally runs into the behind the camera, holds up the cue cards, and Conan starts talking and says, I know why you're, I know what you want to know. Here's the final score. Tells the joke. It gets a mild laugh. It's like, you know, like a, like a B minus C plus <laughs> laugh. And I'm like heaving out of breath. And then Conan effortlessly, because he's a pro, goes into his monologue. And all I could think the whole time was like, what would have happened if we had waited 20 more seconds? Like the audience at home never know, will never know that this happened until now, 18 years later, I tell it on a podcast. Can, can you get an answer to that question? I, can you reach out to Conan and ask him what would have happened if, and, and tell us more about what this stress stream was like, because I can't believe it's the hardest thing you've ever had to do. Well, the, the point of this is, first of all, thank God it was Conan, right? Because if it were a random TV actress or, or, or like, God forbid, like a politician or a, or, or a, you know, an athlete, if it were Derek Jeter, he just would have stood there blankly waiting for, for, the, for the cue cards to come out. But the, the point of telling this story is, and I will ask him next time I talk to him, uh, if he even remembers that. The point of the story, though, is that like that's what life is like there. It is unique amongst all shows on television in that it is actually live and things are changing up until the last second. And because of that, and because you live like that, you live week to week, moment to moment, hour to hour, knowing that like things could royally screw up all the time. And so even now, I left that show in 2004. And even now, 17 years later, I have a stress dream once or twice a year that involves something like that story. It involves me realizing it's usually, usually the dream is I just realized that someone comes up to me and says, your sketch is airing right now. What are you doing? <laughs> and I go, oh my God. And then I'm running and I'm looking at a paper in my hand and I can't, you know, in dreams, you can't read anything. So I, it's always blank or confusing or I've lost it. And I hear through a monitor, I hear something happening and it's nobody's Don, laughing. It's, it's Don, oh, it's not Don Pardo? I thought maybe you heard Don Pardo. <laughs> that every time it was his warbly voice. Like, I mean, the, that is such a great story that you and such a terrible dream. It sounds like uh, a horrible way to wake up. It is a night. It is literally a nightmare. And, and every <laughs> single time I wake up, I just feel a wave of two waves of relief. The first is, thank God, that was a dream. And the second is, thank God, I don't work there anymore because I don't, I don't think I could handle it anymore. What a haunting. That is just a terrible haunting yeah. scar for Saturday Night Live. An alleged funny place to leave on you. Like a, a haunting so thorough thing, it appears two decades later. But here's the thing. If you go through that and you come out the other side, nothing phases you. There is literally no situation you could ever put me in professionally, I'll say professionally. There's no situation you could ever put me in that would be scarier than that. And as a result, I'm extremely calm all the time. Like I never lose my cool. I never shout at anyone or yell or scream or have a heart attack or have hypertension. My doctor, I had a checkup recently. My doctor told me that my blood pressure is so low. He was worried. He was briefly worried that I was bleeding internally. <laughs> <laughs> and it and I and I attribute a lot of that to SNL because like from 21 to 28 I was put through the worst ringer that Hollywood can put you through and so now nothing phases me and it's great I'm so happy for it all right tell the people here we're gonna get you out on this note uh Joe and Mike can be found through Metal Arc Media Levitard and friends the podcast is weekly they have a genuine chemistry and they probably do agree too much but they enjoy each other's company and you will <laughs> you will feel that it's infectious and contagious and and smart and astute and it bounces all over the place these guys can talk about anything but before i ask you both your opinions as decent men about your honest opinions about a controversial subject uh, I just want to tell people about your books. So, Joe, tell the people again, uh, because it's not really the top 100 baseball players. Joe tells macro stories about society, and uh, he's got perspective when he writes. So tell the people what it is they need to know about your book, which has done very well, correct? In crazy, crazy good. It's the Baseball 100. It is 
uh, sort of a look at baseball history through the 100 greatest players ever. And it sold out at Amazon and then, you know, they, they, they can't print it fast enough. And then it got back in Amazon and then it sold out at Barnes and Noble. I mean, it's, it's been crazy. And I don't, I don't fully understand why an 800 page <laughs> well, well, no, because it's through. because you're a great writer and it's a deeper story. Oh, knock it off. Just knock it off with the fake no, humility. Like, I, oh, listen to me. This is why it happens, Poznanski. This should have been what you got when you did the Paterno book, but a whole bunch of things happened that ended up mucking up that whole situation. You are an extraordinary writer who's wasted a great deal of your time on sports, and I am certain that this big, heavy, giant book of a book that you have made has a deeper resonance than just baseball so knock it off with the the all false right. humility all right you're right it's great i mean what am i gonna tell you it's okay awesome. it is great and mike <laughs> tell him about your great book as well i don't want to i mean what gibberish nonsense from him about his book <laughs> michael tell mike i'm sorry tell them about your book because they can't get it yet right no it's out january 25th it's called how to be perfect you can pre-order it now uh from from bookshop.org which i highly recommend yeah. as a, a consortium that helps uh small local bookstores and also other places, other more famous, large uh, retailers you've probably heard of. And it's uh, the history of, of moral philosophy, but told in a hopefully a humorous and uh, light way that doesn't give you a headache when you read it. That's the that's the basic pitch. It is it is a very fun book and a You're smart, thanked in it, by the I, way, I Levitard. Be, you, you, get an, you get an acknowledgement. You get an official acknowledgement because you were the first person other outside my family who read it. Oh, the wow. Very first. I'm, yeah. I am flattered. And these are two decent human beings who are trying to do the right thing. So just so that you know, again, they are contributing everything they're doing with the podcast, if you want to support it, uh, to the Negro Leagues Museum, correct? Is there anything correct. that you need the people to know on that front? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you can support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum by going to nlbm.org. I always forget if it's .org .com. or .com. It's, .com. I think it's .com, yeah. Um, so if you, want to, if you want to throw them a few bucks, but yes, all whatever money we make from this, at least for the time being, we might switch charities down the line, but for now, it's all going to the, uh, to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Two fundamentally decent human beings. I want your honest opinions unfiltered. We will start with you, Mike, on Derek Jeter. As a human being or as a baseball player? Have at it. As a human being, I don't know him, don't have really have an opinion one way or the other, except obviously that he's a deeply evil person uh, <laughs> and uh, and unpleasant and no one likes him and no one should like him. And as a as a, a player, the most overrated shortstop in history doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. A compiler, a classic compiler, as Billy Gill would say. The most overrated athlete, no, the most overrated entertainer in any medium <laughs> in American history. Billy, you want to get yeah. in here? You want to get in here and uh, and you you look radiant back there. As <laughs> I would never, I would <laughs> never say a sour thing about the captain, the owner of the Marlins. Now, <laughs> you, just being contrarian now. No did, matter what I said, he was going to take the opposite position. How did you feel I, about Carlos Correa ripping him? Oh, I didn't see that. Did Correa rip him? Oh yeah. He oh, he said, said he didn't deserve his gold gloves. Yeah, he said he didn't deserve. Oh, any of that. His gold yes, gloves. I did see that. Yeah. No. Well, Correa is right. Listen, when Jeter. When Jeter went into the Hall of Fame, I did a 28-tweet thread where I was like, Derek Jeter doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, and here's why, and did like a, a like a point-by-point -point breakdown. And then the last tweet was like, of course, I'm just kidding. He's one of the greatest shortstops of all time. This whole thing was a joke. But I, the replies I was getting the whole time were like, thank you, finally someone said this. I'm so glad that he did this. And then at the end, I was like, I'm, no, I'm kidding. What if he was on the Pirates? <laughs> uh, guys, thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.